This morning is March 16th, 2008. It's Triumphal Entry Sunday, and our message is about a 4,000-year-old question. 4,000 years before today, a man named Abraham lived, a man who was considered to be God's friend. And Abraham was considered to be God's friend because his faith was expressed in his actions. Like the book of James, Jesus' brother would say later, I will show you my faith by what I do. And during Abraham's day, a profound question was asked, one that took centuries and centuries and centuries to answer, one which so baffled the nation of Israel it caused a stumbling of biblical proportions. So this morning, we're going to start in Genesis 22, and we're going to look at how this question came into being. Is that all right? We have a little bit of a somber mood going in here this morning, and I want you to know if you don't answer me when I ask you questions, if you don't turn with me when I ask you to turn, then I'm going to cry and leave. And how awkward will that be for you? John, what will you do if I leave in the middle of the sermon? You have to call on Adam or somebody to come up here and preach. So, y'all in Genesis 22? Yes. Yes, amen. All right, so in Genesis 22, what we have that is built to this moment is a promise given to Abraham decades earlier. Decades earlier, God had told he and his wife, in your old age, you're going to have a child, a promised son. One not born in an ordinary way, one born in a supernatural way, meaning that they were beyond the ability to have kids, and yet God himself was going to give them a child. That child is now grown up. When it says sometime later, you need to understand tens of years have passed. Genesis 22.1 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, or he said to him, Abraham, (laughs) isn't it good that God knows your name? A few days ago, we had a guest speaker that got pretty darn excited because the devil knew somebody's name. These demons spoke to Paul in the book of Acts. Actually spoke to sons of Sceva and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard about, but who are you? And this guest speaker's whole message was about the enemy knowing your name, because you're dangerous to him. And I want you to know, saints, that excites me. Every day I want to be dangerous to the enemy. But that doesn't excite me half as much as the king of kings knowing my name. God spoke to this man whom he was in covenant with, and with an explanation point in your English Bible that says, Abraham, God's excited. He's excited because he's about to get this man into a position where he can show his trust. There is nothing that excites God like human beings placing their trust in him. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son. If you were going to read that in the King James Bible, it could be translated your only begotten son. Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Now, many of you know how the rest of this story plays out, and I understand that. It's kind of like going to watch the movie Titanic. You shouldn't be surprised when the ship sinks. And then I'm going to ask you to roll back some of your preconceived thoughts and framework about this, to consider this from Abraham's perspective, to consider it from Isaac's perspective and God's. How did God introduce the idea? Abraham! With excitement. 
Then what did he say is qualifying about Isaac? Take your son, your only son. In other words, God understood what he was asking of Abraham. Then he says, your son whom you love. A little bit like God is going to ask of him everything. Everything that is important to him. Salvation is so much like this thing. We are so quick to say it's free. We're so quick to say it's free, it's free, it's free, it's free! Because you don't pay money to get it. And yet it will cost you every dream, every desire. It requires you to put your future in God's hands. For you to step off the throne of your life. For you to accept a new king who has the right to tell you to do what he wants you to do. Even if you don't. Everybody keeps asking me this morning, Eric, how's your truck? I find that funny. It says more about me than you. You're asking about my truck because you've heard that I had mechanical problems in Mexico. But that's not really why people are asking me about my truck. They're asking me about my truck because they know among the material things that I treasure, it's towards the top of the list. That's why people are asking me about my truck, isn't it? Says, you know, Eric, how is the truck? Have you heard anything yet? Because it's somewhat of a sacrifice to be without it. It hurts a little bit because I love it. I had a chance on the border to turn around. We're sitting in a parking lot. There is a cloud of white smoke that is not the glory of God behind my diesel truck. Everyone else who has wisely invested in Dodge Cummings engines is mocking me. And there is that small voice in me that says, you could turn around. There was a dealership right down the road. You could turn around. And thank God I had a student with me. Thank God I had a student with me because what do teachers do in front of students? They teach. So there's a young man with me who my obligation in life is to raise up as a disciple. He says, what are we going to do? I said, brother, God won't allow you to have a golden calf. Right? Bold. Right out there. Brother, God won't allow you to have a golden calf. And I see he's contemplating it. And inside I was crying. Every time I deaccelerated, the glory cloud grew. I said, you know that's a gasket. Uh-huh. I know. You know you can crack your block. Uh-huh. I know. God has the right to ask of us anything He desires and where there is suffering Glory is on the other side. You have to know that thing. And there is never a time in which the gospel is advanced where it does not cost you something. If it does not cost you your reputation, if it does not cost you some comfort, if it does not require sacrifice on your part, then there is not true obedience. Because your obedience is not tested when God tells you to eat ice cream. God says, Gabriel, I want you to eat ice cream, buddy. Eat all the chocolate ice cream you want. How hard is that for my little Gabriel to do? It's the very desire of his heart. Of course he wants to eat ice cream. Gabriel, God wants you to eat lima beans. Now that's a different story. Not just for Gabriel, but for his daddy too. Obedience is tested when we are asked to do something that we don't want to do. And yet, what better way to decide in your heart? What better way to proclaim to all the world that you are not in control of your life but a higher power is than when you do the thing that you do not want to do. So put yourself now, 4,000 years ago in history, into an old man who was named Abram. And Abram, 
name meant exalted father. Can you imagine that for some 80 years, Abram had a hard time in life because he had no children? How would you like to be named great athlete? Darren, great athlete. We're going to say, Darren's got a head, a, a, a marker across his head that says, I am a great athlete everywhere he goes. And yet Darren never plays a sport. Maybe, now you have to stretch really far for this, but maybe Darren is even a little bit out of shape. What would people say about Darren's name that it says great athlete? Do you think maybe people would snicker when he walked by? Do you think maybe people would wonder if he was, oh dear God, get this, misnamed? Names in the Bible have to do with your function. In Oriental customs, a name had to do with your reputation. The best way I know to tell Americans this in the South is they're like Indian names. Somebody is dances with wolves because you saw them dancing with wolves. In the Bible, names were given prophetically over what someone was to become. And Abram's name meant exalted father. And he walked around for many years with no children. How must that have made him look? So a promise comes. And with the promise, a change in his name, his reputation. A change in the way that people were to view him. Now, if you had no children and you were in the 80s and your name was Big Daddy, what kind of name change would you expect? Good guy. Nice old man. He who has many servants. But that's not the God we serve. God said, oh, you just thought your name, your reputation was possible as exalted father. I'm going to add some of me to it. I'm going to put some of my Ruach Ha-Kodesh into it, and we're going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. The translation difference is from exalted father to the father of many nations. Don't you think there must have been a temptation to go, God, you evidently don't understand. See, Sarah and I have been working at this real hard, and it's not working. Do you think that they may have laid in bed and wondered, is it her fault or is it my fault? Then they get into a little bad situation with Hagar. Now poor Sarah's handling all the blame herself because she knows her husband's capable of producing children. She's not. Some of you women that have struggled to have kids, you must know what that's like. They carried this around for years and now the object of their desire is here. The thing that they have believed for, prayed for, yearned for, staked their reputation and their trust in God upon is here. A son. Their only son. And what does God want? He says, well, take him to the region of Moriah. I want to read you something. Keep your finger here, saints. We have a lot to cover. So put your finger here about the region of Moriah. Go to Second Chronicles. be passing through Judges and Ruth and 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. You'll make your way to 2nd Chronicles. You'll be in the 3rd chapter. The region called Moriah. To you young people, Moriah is a girl who sings songs on the radio. But in biblical history, Moriah was something entirely different. 2nd Chronicles, which I'm not in, the third chapter and the first verse. 
Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Hmm. So where Solomon's temple was, was a mountain called Moriah. Where did God tell Abraham to go? A region called Moriah. We're going to find out that there is a region with several mountain tops on it. It would later become known as Zion. It was always known as Jerusalem. But there's a specific mountain there. In fact, this says that this mountain had been shown during David's day. So let's go to 2 Samuel quickly. You will hang a left in your Bibles. And we'll be in 2 Samuel 24. A story you may not know about Moriah. 2 Samuel 24, starting in the 10th verse. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Conscience-stricken. How did you get born again? Was it born out of your desire, your acknowledgement of how great you were? How did you get born again? Didn't you come to a place in which you were no longer comfortable in your own skin because you realized you were dirty? Didn't you come to a place at some point in your life where you realized your best just wasn't good enough anymore, more was required? David has done something. He's done something that we have all done. He counted his fighting men. He said, well, what's wrong with that? God wanted the strength of Israel to be dependent upon the trust in God, not in their numbers of men. He said, well, that's good. He shouldn't have done that thing then. Well, what do you think it's like, saints, when we face a challenge and the first thing we do is see what our bank balance is? What do you think it's like when maybe Jesus asked one of his disciples, one of his Talmudims, when he says, hey, where are we going to get bread for all these people? And he asked only to test them. And the disciple answers, eight months' wages is not enough to buy food for all these people. They couldn't all have a bite. Isn't that just like counting your fighting men? We have a problem in front of us. Now how can we solve it? Leaning on our own right arm. God was upset with David about this because David was leaning upon David's strengths and abilities. I haven't forgotten it's Palm Sunday. I promise we'll come back to that. So David is conscience stricken. He says, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. Take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. That's almost like a salvation prayer, isn't it? David, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Methodist, Lutheran, and Catholic. No, I'm kidding. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land? Famine. How much would a famine affect a king? Y'all can answer me. It'll be all right. How much would a famine affect a king? You think the king's going to not eat during a famine? Who do you think eats first? And it, by the way, have you ever noticed any of our presidents getting leaner in office? Probably not, huh? I imagine that the head of a nation eats fairly well, huh? So there's three punishments coming. Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land? 
or three years of months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. David reasoned in his heart. He knows God's able to keep people alive in famine. He wrote about it himself in Psalm 34. But he reasoned famine's going to affect the people more than it's going to affect me. Then he thought about fleeing from enemies. He said, you know, I've been there. I've, I've done that a lot. Not only do the people suffer, but men are a whole lot more cruel than God. Psalm 91 says he'll protect me in a plague if I call on him. The Bible teaches that God is merciful. Let me put myself in the hands of God. I'll leave it up to him, but not evil men and not a famine that would punish the people. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! By the way, Jerusalem is in the region of Moriah. Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. So, in the area of Aruna, the Jebusite's threshing floor, where you beat wheat and gather some into the barn and some into the fire, that would later stand the temple in Solomon's day where God, his name, would be placed. And the whole region was called Moriah, and the actual spot the mountain was on was called Mount Moriah. Turn back with me to Genesis 22. That was fast, huh? Because your fingers are there, right? And you have ten fingers, so I can have you hold ten spaces, right? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, a region later that would be synonymous with God's name, a, a place in which a king in Israel, had offered himself and his family as a sacrifice so that no more people would die. A place where a man stood and observed a plague while he was standing in a threshing floor. All of this would come to symbolize an event in the future that would thresh out the people of Israel and the people of the world allowing them to be sifted as a man would sift wheat. Some would be gathered into a barn. Others would be burned with unquenchable fire. All of this would happen in the region called Moriah, but we've not gotten there yet. We're still 2,000 years B.C. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. There is a range of mountains there. One would be called Mount Moriah later. It would be where a temple 
But just outside of Mount Moriah, there are other mountains still in the region of Moriah, some that would fall outside of a city gate, less than a Sabbath day's walk. And the people would come to know it as the place of the skull, Golgotha. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place. Who cut the wood for the offering? Abraham. Abraham prepared in advance for this sacrifice. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, how many days of plague were there? Three. Three days, David watched and observed people dying, and then he offered himself and his family as a sacrifice on a historic mountain range that would become known as the place where God would provide later in this chapter. Three days. Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Abraham's been told to go to a region, but he doesn't know where in the region. It's a chain of mountains. So he sets out in obedience. And just like us, he set out not knowing which place he would go. And he had to be told by God which place. If you don't know this yet, saints, God will tell you to do things without giving you very much information. How many of you explain to your children why you want them to do everything that you ask them to do? There's not enough time in the day. I simply speak to my sons and I expect them to do what I told them to do. And if they ask why, the best answer in the world, come on, saints, you know it, because I'm your daddy. (laughs) Who's your daddy? When you have a relationship that is father to son, you don't have to explain yourself because you already are the father. And children have to be taught to love the father, but the love of a father for a son is natural. The fact that the children exist shows that a father and mother love them. They're still here. We didn't put them back. We fed them and clothed them. One of the ways children show their love for their parents is by doing what their parents tell them to do. Since this was supposed to be a picture of us and God. When he says jump, we don't say why. We say how high. Or we just jump and say, was that high enough? Would you like me to do better? The church views God as a cosmic genie. Or a heavenly Santa Claus. Lord, this is what I would like. Bless me, Johnny, Susie, us four. No more. We ask for God to bless us. We write books about Him blessing us. They sell. Maybe that's why people are writing them. We build bigger gymnasiums in His name every year. Where is the emphasis on obedience is better than sacrifice? God is looking for men and women that He can call friends. And the reason He calls them friends is when they do what He tells them to do. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Would you believe that a Hebrew prophet, a great teacher, somebody called a rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua, who was said to be the Hamashiach, Jesus said to be the Christ, recorded in John's memoirs, 
in the 8th chapter in the 56th verse said, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it. I wonder when did Abraham see Jesus' day since 2,000 years of history separate those two men. Perhaps it's when he began to be obedient to God, setting out in a general direction and looked up in the distance after three days' travel and saw the place that a great sacrifice would occur. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I go over there with the boy. We will worship and then we will come back to you. (laughs) We will go over there and we will come back We will go over there and worship and we will come back to you. Either Abraham lied through his teeth because why did God send him over there? To kill his child. Either Abraham lied through his teeth, which is a possibility. Has Abraham ever lied before? He said, "Uh, she's my sister. (laughs) Or perhaps what Hebrews 11 says, 17 through 19 says is true. It says Abraham reasoned in his heart. God's able to raise the dead. Hebrews 4.13 says that he reasoned in his heart God was able to perform what he had promised. If God wants me to kill the boy over there, he must be going to raise him from the dead because God has promised that through this child a nation would be born. Through this child every nation on the planet would be blessed. So perhaps he's not lying. Perhaps it's a statement of faith. Maybe when he looked up in the distance and saw the place, he began to have a spark of greater trust in his heart. One that was born of heaven that says, if I'm obedient to God, I can't imagine how. But somehow, God's going to work it out because He's promised and He's faithful. Come on, saints. Somewhere in that, there's got to be something that begins to minister to your heart. He had not asked you to kill your son may not even ask you to kill your diesel truck. But he asked you to do something that hurts. And you may not see any way in which it can work out, and yet a spark of trust is born in your heart. And you said, every time he's asked of me before, he's come through. And so you wipe the tears from your eyes and you set out in obedience. And God comes through for his people. This is how the kingdom advances, saints. I know there are men on TV that will tell you if you write big enough checks, it advances the kingdom. I know there are people out there that will explain a supernatural faith. Well, sounds like witchcraft. Just think it, imagine, and it'll be there. Really? That didn't work for my friends in Mexico this week. They've been thinking of beautiful houses and they still live in a garbage dump. And yet they're not forgotten by God. Maybe what everybody has described as Christianity falls woefully short. Maybe there's a good reason for that. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here. Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? We're going to fast forward in history a little bit here. We will, of course, come back to this. What a profound situation. 
a young man is realizing God's will for his life may be different than he thought it was. What do you think Isaac was born at? How do, you, how, do you know anybody that's waited a long time for a child? I one time knocked the front teeth out of the young man's mouth whose mama and daddy had been praying for him for 14 years to be born. And they happened to be the children and grandchildren of a great LSU football coach named Paul Dietzel, and this kid was named for him. Those parents were not all that happy with me. And I explained that it was an accident. It was Matthew's fault. He distracted me and the young man's teeth ran into my elbow. No amount of persuasion seemed to help me with his parents because they had great dreams and hopes for their baby. He came from a family that was used to accomplishing things and they had waited a long time and dreamed very big dreams for him. What do you think it was like for Isaac? Do you think every day of his life he was probably reminded we prayed to God for you and after decades we have you and everybody said it couldn't be done but you're here now. Do you think maybe he grew up with a sense of importance? How about when his older brother is tossed from the house because he's the promised son? Come on. What if I threw Judah out and said Gabe's really the important one in here? Do you think Gabe might walk around a little taller, you know, chest a little bowed out? And he's beginning to come to a realization that his father's will for him is going to require some sacrifice. He's left with a choice. How old was Abraham when uh, Isaac was circumcised? A hundred years old. Now, I'll tell you this. Some of you guys in here, I would be no match for. But if we wait till you're a hundred, I might could take you. So Father Abraham's got his boy up there. He's a hundred years older than this child. And the child's beginning to realize, we have all the setting here for a great sacrifice. And I don't see any sacrifices. Daddy, Papa, promised kid over here, uh, What are we going to kill? What a great question. In Daniel 7, I'm going to tell you about this. The 23rd through the 27th verse describes something. And Daniel, he had these panoramic visions. And these visions, the angel told him, concerned the nations. Said these beasts you see, Daniel, these beasts are really nations. And the fourth one will be more terrifying than all of the others. It'll have iron teeth and it'll chew up everything in its path. Have ten horns. Daniel was perplexed by this. The angel said, don't you worry. These things concern the time of the end. Seal them up in your heart. Seal them up in a book. But just before that promise, there was this disturbing thing. One of these horns is going to be broken off. He's going to be a loud and boastful horn. Horn stands for authority in the Bible. So out of a forced kingdom, there would be an authority that was more boastful than all of the others. He would even claim that he was God. Then he would go around pursuing what Daniel was told were the saints of God. For a time, time, and a half time, people argue a great deal over what that means. It's generally assumed it's three and a half years. 
and he would put to death the saints. Now, if you don't believe me, read the seventh chapter of Daniel. You'll find out I rarely lie when I preach, though occasionally it happens. And in this fourth kingdom, God himself would intervene. He would stop the persecution of what Daniel called the saints. The court would be set. He would rule in favor of the saints. Now, by the way, if you are a young Jewish man in Babylon and an angel keeps telling you something is a saint, something is a saint, something is a saint, do you think you're thinking of a Roman Catholic saint? No, Roman Catholicism won't exist till 400 A.D. If you're a young Jewish boy in covenant with God and an angel's telling you that a saint is persecuted by some demonic authority, but God Himself is going to come and rescue you, who do you think you think the saint is? The Jewish people, right? In fact, He calls them the people of the Most High God. And what people on the planet better bear that title than the Jews? The people of the Most High God. So they were waiting for this fourth kingdom in some horrible, malevolent authority that was putting them to death for a period of time and God Himself would intervene. He would set up His court, rule in favor of the Jewish people and give them a kingdom that would last forever. That's quite a promise, isn't it? In fact, if you were a Jewish boy with at least four fingers, when you were reading through history, you might look for the four largest kingdoms. You might see that Babylon, the time in which this promise was given, was the first to scope across the earth and move from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire in your history book. Say they were the second. Then maybe you would see a young man named Alexander the Great who set out bent on conquest and conquered the known world in his day and go, there's three So now when the Roman oppressor enters Jerusalem, your city, and on the day of Augustus Caesar's birth, they worshipped him for 12 days, claiming him to be the Son of God, you might be getting excited. Let's see, Babylon 1, Medo-Persian 2, Greek 3. This guy's a Roman. That's 4. Maybe you would be looking for God himself to intervene on your behalf. And what was he going to do? Oh, he's going to set a heavenly court. He's going to rule in favor of the Jewish people and have them as a kingdom that will rule all others. You'd be looking for the day where Jericho's walls fell and all the Jews ran straight in. If you were Jewish, wouldn't you? Well, these promises were given to the Jewish people. In fact, maybe there is no better example of messianic expectation than Zechariah 9. How could we not read Zechariah 9 on Palm Sunday? But don't you like to say the triumphal entry? I mean, isn't there something in our nature that likes to think of a triumphal entry? Until you read what happens after that. We have a much easier time viewing a king who is bent on conquest and destruction, who we're on his side but he's going to whip everybody else. We have a much easier time envisioning that kind of king than another. Tell me when you're in Zechariah. If you get to Matthew, you went too far. Hang a left and go back to Zechariah. We'll be in the ninth chapter. In Zechariah, starting 9, 
We'll be in the 8th verse, and I want you to remember something. Zechariah wrote a letter. He knew that this letter would be widely distributed. Furthermore, Zechariah knew that his letter was a prophecy. And yet, Zechariah never felt the need to put chapters in it, verses in it, or title headings. Maybe every word and every paragraph was supposed to be equal to the next. So ignore this title heading here. The eighth verse. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. How encouraging is that if you're reading that, knowing that you're sitting under the thumb of an oppressor? No title headings, no verses, just a letter. And you realize that God is going to protect you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. What kind of king had they been promised? One riding on the clouds of heaven. One who would crush the four Gentile kingdoms. One who would gain the obedience of all nations or else he would dash them to pieces like pottery. Read your Psalms, saints. Those were real promises of national deliverance. In America, we have never been oppressed. In America, we do not know what it is like for someone to come into our houses and take our daughters as payment for taxes. In America, we don't even know what it is like to be truly hungry. But Israel had some very difficult times as a stepping stool for the four Gentile kingdoms of the world, and they were hurting. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. To us, salvation has a very Greek mindset. We think of salvation as a spiritual enlightenment. Ooh, I was saved and I feel warm, fuzzy feelings. You ever heard that? I say it, and it happened to me. When a Jew thought of salvation, he did not think of warm, fuzzy feelings. He thought of deliverance from oppression. He thought of salvation as the next meal in his belly and without a slave master's yoke upon his neck. We have reinterpreted all of these terms in a very spiritual world. In fact, when we talk about a kingdom of God now, most of the time we're envisioning something intangible somewhere else. When the Bible speaks of a kingdom that is coming upon this one, speaks of it in the succession of four Gentile kingdoms on the earth, followed by the kingdom of God on the earth. Israel was never heaven conscious. They believed that heaven was going to set up on the earth with Jerusalem as its capital. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. By the way, Zion is Jerusalem in the region of Moriah. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I want you to see how easy this might be to overread as you read the context with which it's set in. Right? Jesus, gentle, riding on a donkey. Very passive, very sweet, a loving teacher, right? But just above it was salvation, which you saw as temporal deliverance. Now read what's next. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nation. His rule will extend from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners 
from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore to you twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow. I will fill Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. If you were reading this and you don't have the cross in the rearview mirror, if you are reading this and all that you have known is the yoke of Roman oppression and prior to that, the yoke of the oppression of Greece, their feet on your neck, them taking from you the best of your land. When you saw this kind of verse, might you think of a national deliverance and a glorious war king? Of course you would. That doesn't make them stupid. You know what that makes them? Human beings. Human beings called by God. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The Sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. Then they will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord, their God, will save them on that day as the flock of His people and they will sparkle in His land like jewels and a crown. Do you think that maybe the people in Jesus' day are not asking, like Isaac, where is the Lamb? Maybe they're asking, where is our King? Who's going to set us free? I never again want to see a Roman oppressor rape my children. I never again want to have to go to that wicked Caesar and see his emblems that are idolatry to me. Do you think maybe that was the cry of the people? Not where is the lamb to deal with my guilt, but where is this power of salvation to free me from all of the trouble in my life? How funny. Have we really changed that much? You listen to people's prayer requests. Listen to our friends in Christendom talk. Are we not always asking for some kind of external deliverance from the bill collector, from sickness, from something? How often does it really deal with your guilt and your obedience? We're no different saints. We want freedom from all of the trouble around us. That's what we want. And what God offers you first is a way to deal with your own sin problem. And then He deals with all of the external forces. We always want God to deal with the forces outside before we have to deal with the forces inside. This shows up with God speaking to a young man saying, come and follow me. And he says, yes, Lord, I will, but first do something for me. So well, I would never do that. And yet you do. God says, do this. And you say, sure, right after dinner. Of course I will. Write this check. When I get a better job, I'll do it. We ransom with God. His will for us only becomes something that we leverage to get what we want from Him. And we have systematic theology around us to help us do it. You even hear Christians being so arrogant as to say, but your word says, 
The Bible describes the Word of God as a sword. How happy would you be if your child turned and pointed a sword towards you to remind you of what your very character says? Do you really think God forgets His Word? Maybe that that scripture in Isaiah 62 is teaching us for us to remember God's Word. Huh. Well, I was just praying the Word. What was your heart like when you were claiming your Cadillac? What was your heart like? Is it dealing with your own wretched disobedience or have you just accepted a bless me gospel? Joined a social club? Paid your membership dues? This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I know. I know. Salvation will cost you everything. If he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, whether you understand him or not, you run to his feet and say, you have the words of life. Show me how. And he says, you know, Les, I don't really want you to chew on my finger. I want you to do what I say. He says, oh, I got it. I got it. See, sometimes, Lord, I misunderstand you, but I want to do whatever you tell me to do. Please make it clear to me tells you to move a car, you get in your three-point stance, you charge the car and ram it with your head. It doesn't move an inch. So you back up a little further and you try a little harder and it doesn't move an inch. You say, Lord, I'm trying to move the car. He says, here's the key, son. Put them in the ignition. That's how it works. Then at least you're obedient. God can deal with stupid. He deals with me all day long. What he cannot deal with is the disobedience. You set your feet towards obedience. You set out towards Moriah and He will show you the spot. You raise the knife in your hand not knowing how or why and He will intervene where you need Him to intervene because He's our God and we are His people. It's another message, but we're His people by grafting, not by first choice. We are actually God's second choice, although He had us in mind from the beginning. You see... The Jewish people's response to the triumphal entry was very mixed. In fact, let's read it in Luke. I've got to try not to run out of time here. But y'all can't see the clock anyway, can you? That's good. In Luke 19, let's start there. I start every Sunday morning with the same problem. Dear God, what do I teach? What on earth am I going to share with them? I have nothing on my mind. Lord, help me. And 20 minutes later, I have more than I can teach on a Sunday service, but we're going to try. In Luke 19, the 28th verse. After Jesus had said this, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As He approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. I want you to try that today. (laughs) You can't. God would have to tell you to go do it. So don't run out to a car parking lot, anoint something with oil, and say God needs it. Don't do that. I was a car salesman in my early days of Christianity, and the worst days of the week were Mondays because there was a large church locally that was teaching people to name and claim things. And on Monday, I got to deal with the idiots that came out through oil on cars and claimed them in the name of Jesus. And the reason that I got to deal with them was because I was the resident Christian. 
then we pulled their credit and realized that they could not afford to pay attention, much less for a car. And nothing in their credit history demonstrated the ability to pay for anything. They needed a cosigner just to pay cash. And yet they were claiming it in the name of Jesus. And one profound question always came to my mind. Did Jesus send you to get this? And the answer was always yes, but I suspected greed or something else sent them to get it. Saints, doctrine is a wonderful servant. He's a horrible master. And there are times in which we have so hemmed ourselves into garbage because of doctrine that we can't repent from because it's part of the fabric of who we are. We're Word of Faith. We're Pentecostal. We're Baptist. Really? Let's just be a Christian and be obedient. And that means that if any of your points that define you as a Christian turn out to conflict with what the Holy Word says, you throw out the point and claim the name Christian. That shouldn't be such a novel concept, but I assure you it is. Even when churches are started because somebody gets the left foot of fellowship from a traditional church, and then that church is so obviously blessed by God that it grows, flourishes, supports missions all over the world while the other one dies, the people still stand staunch-footed and say, but we are blah, and refuse to repent. How hard are our hearts? And yet what we point to are those bad Jews who killed Jesus. Hmm. So they go into a village, they ask for a colt. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. You have to have a society that loves the Lord for this to work at all. You go to your neighbor's house, tell him uh, that chainsaw, the Lord needs it. See how he responds to you. Obviously, everybody concerned really had a profound love for God, although they may misunderstand his working from time to time. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and put it on Jesus. As he went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of Yahweh. Psalm 118, they sang it three times a year. Peace in the highest and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. And then he prophesies about an enemy coming and spreading embankments against Jerusalem. How interesting is it that this is happening in the region of Moriah, where a three-day plague 1,000 years before this killed 70,000 people. And a righteous king stood up and offered he and his family as a sacrifice. Hmm. If only you had known what would bring you peace. Do you remember on the threshing floor of Arona when David was on his face crying out to God? Do you remember that God was grieved because uh, he was destroying Jerusalem? You need to understand something. 
God never set out to destroy the Jewish people. Any calamity that they were caused at any time was for one purpose. It was David's request. Cleanse me of guilt. Cleanse me of guilt. And they are the example for the whole world. Cleanse us of guilt. And now Jesus is weeping over a city that doesn't realize what will cleanse it from guilt. And what is it that has so blinded them, I wonder? Could it be their own desire for a warlike king? But how wicked is that? It's all based on Scripture. Surely nobody would ever misunderstand the coming of the Lord based on Scripture. You can look at Jack Van whatever and Hal whoever and all of those guys on TV and they all disagree about the next coming of the Lord, don't they? And the ones that do all agree, doesn't it sound a little fairy tale-ish to you? Based on two or three scriptures, kind of a theological house of cards waiting to fall. Doesn't bear up under any scrutiny. People would never read the Word, think about God delivering them in a very temporal sense, and misunderstand it based on their own fears and insecurities and needs for deliverance, would they? They'd never invent for themselves doctrines like we will never suffer, God won't be described. They'd never do anything like that. It's just these bad Jews who missed him. The whole church world has not missed the boat in this regard. Of course not, because we're so very righteous and they're so very bad. In Matthew 21, 1-17, through 17, what we find is the very same story with an addition. If you wanted to prove that a donkey was the foal of a colt, right? Or the, 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 the donkey was a colt, the foal of a mama donkey. If you wanted to prove that, you could just say, well, look at the donkey. He looks young, right? He had to have a mama. They all had mamas. Or you could bring the mama donkey. And in Matthew, he records that they brought the mama donkey. Now, if you're a Jew and you see a mama donkey and you see a colt tethered to her, and somebody coming in on the streets of Jerusalem being received as a king, what do you think is going to happen? You're looking for Caesar to get a first-class whipping, aren't you? I mean, you're thinking, buddy, it's going to be like a red-headed stepchild. You just wait, because our Jewish king is here. How disappointed might you be? By the way, Luke says uh, in the 48th verse that all the people hung on Jesus' words hung on them. About six times in the book of John, I can show where all the people put their trust in Him. The Jewish leadership rejected Jesus because He was not a warlike king that they had so waited for. They misunderstood His mission. The original question is, where is the Lamb? But somehow or another, it had morphed into, where is the conquering king like Saul? Hmm. Interesting. Where is the lamb? What would a lamb be to a Jew? Did you know that Exodus 12.5 teaches that for a Passover lamb, get this, Exodus 12.5, for a Passover lamb, right? You heard Passover lamb. Passover lamb. You ever heard it said any other way? No, it's always Passover lamb. Exodus 12.5 says you can get one from the goats or the sheep. See, Hebrew for lamb is a young goat or sheep. So when you say, where is the lamb? It's not necessarily a lamb like we think of a lamb. It could be a goat. Poor goats get a bad rap, don't they? They bore all the sin. Their blood 
temporarily made people clean. But we all hate goats because of the separation of the sheep and goats. The whole point of the separation of sheep and goats is they look exactly the same way. They hang out in the same places and they're used for the same purposes. But in the end, they'll be separated. wonder who he was talking to with that parable. It must be those bad people out there. Those people who, who are so lost. He could never be talking to the church, those who claim to be in covenant with him, could he? Maybe he could. So a lamb in biblical Hebrew could be a young goat or a lamb. Hmm. So, well, there's the most famous one. There's a Passover lamb, right? Famous to us. 1,600 years, we take a lamb into our houses on the 10th of Nisan. We inspect it. Our kids get to play with it. They form an emotional bond with it. And then what daddy did? Cuts its throat in front of everybody. And every year, the same feeling. Oh, but why? Why does something have to die? Well, it has to die, son. Because if it didn't, you would. Something innocent has to die that God's death angel would do over. And when the Jews read this, the story is called Haggadah. And they perform an order called the Seder. And they take the people through this emotional journey. And when they read Israel came out of Egypt, they read, we came out. Because they personally identify with the death angel passing them over, even though it only occurred once. Sounds a lot like communion, doesn't it? We personally identify with the meal that happened right before Jesus died, even though he died only once for all. Unless you belong to another tradition, then they perpetually kill him, even though the Word says that doesn't happen. Well, what might be another lamb or goat in your mind? Every year, once a year, we have a small lamb, a kid, or a goat, we refer to them as goat because the distinction's made, but in the Jewish mindset, it's either one who is offered up for atonement. The whole nation watched one goat who died for the sins of all the people. His death cleansed them. Where is the lamb? Oh, then there's another one. A goat called the goat of removal. This goat the priest prayed about all of the sins of the people, placed his hands on this goat's head, dipped a cord into red paint and marked the goat's head so that everybody would see this goat called an Azazel, the goat of removal or the goat who takes away sin, was our scapegoat. And they would watch a man appointed for the task lead this goat outside the city and let it go because his whole life long, this poor goat's job was to bear the sins of the people. So when we says, Father, where is the lamb? And this is before the Mosaic law, before all of these things have been delineated. Father, where is the lamb? The lamb came to mean many things. A lamb who causes sin to pass you over. A lamb that causes you to be cleansed as a nation from sin. An offering whose life bears your sin. Father, where is the lamb? If you want to read about that, you can read about it in Leviticus 16. So let's turn to John 19. I'm sorry, John 1. 
You all understand that the word lamb had come to mean many things symbolically? When we say dove today, what do you think of? Dove. Somebody said spirit, what else? What's the world think of? Peace. Spirit, peace, right? Synonymous with dove. Lamb, synonymous with all the things that I've mentioned. You are so excited you're waiting for national deliverance. We celebrate the 4th of July every year. Why? Oh, because we as Americans value our independence. Right? Those of you that work with British people might even pick a little fun at them that time of year, huh, Steve? Yeah. Across the pond, they don't understand why we take off on the 4th. But it's because we value our independence. Do you think the Jews were any different? Do you think they wanted their independence? Imagine what this must have been like. What kind of message? You believe you are a child of God because you were delivered from a foreign country. You believe you are a child of God because you have the written Word of God. You believe you are a child of God because since you were born, you were in covenant with God. You believe you are a child of God because temple taxes had been paid for you. You believe you are a child of God based on your ancestry select people group, unique covenant and identity. And now someone has come preaching for you to repent. Well, how well does the church world take it when you look at them and say repent? They say, well, they need to, and they need to, and that denomination over there needs to, everywhere except turning that mirror upon us. Jewish people are no different. So you know who came? to hear John the Baptist message? Whores and tax collectors. People who knew they needed to repent while the church folks stayed home. So one day, somebody else comes to John the Baptist ministry. And in verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God! who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit and come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now Matthew adds to this exact passage of Scripture in his account. Oh, he's got a winnowing fork in his hand. You know where you use a winnowing fork? A threshing floor, like Arunas. Like where the temple was built. And like where Abraham was told to go. Go back with me to Genesis 22. Tell me when you're there. The question Isaac asked Abraham 4,000 years ago was answered in Jesus' ministry. Father, where is the Lamb? John the Baptist said, Behold, I see the Lamb come to take away the sin of the world. 
Abraham answered, God Himself. This is the 8th verse. God Himself will provide the lamb. God Himself will provide the lamb. Right now, it looks like it's Isaac. David thought it was a member of his family. They were all right. It would be a promised son. It would be a king, a son of David. Do you know what they cried out at the triumphal entry? Hosanna, son of David, save us! Do you think that they remember that David had offered his son as somebody to remove the guilt from Jerusalem in a place that would later be called Golgotha? I bet they didn't. Abraham answered, God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So easy to read about a story. What if it was Gabe Mays? And Grayson, his son. Isn't there something in you that says, No, don't stop! How many of you had problems watching the Passion of the Christ? Some of you still hadn't seen it, huh? When asked how I felt about that, I felt like I had just seen my best friend, Matthew, or Justin, or Brad, or some of you in here, beaten beyond recognition. That's how I felt. Something in us cries out, No, it's unjust! No! And that's the feeling that it's supposed to cause because you realize that it is you who deserves it and not them. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. <laughs> Christians, do, do me a favor. Don't ever put yourself in the category of this man because of some ridiculous test you had to pass. Well, I thought maybe... Heaven fell my car was kind of like Abraham with Isaac. Shut up. It sounds better you said in Hebrew. Shack it. You say, but then I didn't have to. I didn't have to become obedient because God stayed my hand. Yeah. Or your flesh did, you wimp. Better word than I was thinking. This man raised a knife to kill his Son, his hopes, his promises, his future, because he was obedient to God and he knew God would fix it somehow or another. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, aren't you glad they know your name? Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Really? What about five minutes before that? It apparently was still in question. But his actions are showing his faith. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, thorns, thicket, thorns, in. He saw a ram. You know what the difference between a ram and a regular sheep is? The ram is the king of the sheep. Caught by its horns. How do you know a ram from every other sheep? Tell me, saints. How do you know a ram 
from every other sheep. It has a crown. Its authority is in its horns. He stands proud and tall and you can look at a distance and see what He is just by virtue. He doesn't have to try to be a ram. He doesn't have to go to a school to learn to be a ram. He just is a ram. Jesus didn't have to imitate worldly kings. He just was a king. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is what the theologians called vicarious substitution. And I didn't ever understand it any more than I expect you to. So let's say it the way the Word says it. Instead of his son. Something was sacrificed instead of his son. Saints, something was sacrificed instead of of us. That's what salvation is. And why was He sacrificed? He was caught in sin by virtue of His crown. In this region, a friend of God offered His Son and God said, no thanks. In this region, a king installed by God called His King in Zion offered He and His family. And God said, no thanks. I have something of my own I want to bring to the game. And God gave His very best. At every turn, the people acknowledged this without knowing it. When they came out and received Him as King on triumphal entry, they didn't know they were receiving David's son who would die for them. When Pilate came out and said, Do you want Barabbas or do you want this man? In John 19.5, 1915. And they said, No! Take him away! They were saying in Hebrew, Azazel! He's the goat who will bear our sin. And they didn't even realize it. In every way, Jesus was killed by Israel for Israel. And you and I just benefit from it because the Jewish apostles, everyone was Jewish, wrote it down and included us in it. And one special one named Shaul. We call him Paul because it's more comfortable for us. His Hebrew name is Shaul. Wrote it down and made his ministry about including us in God's plan of salvation. And so we're here. I want to finish Genesis 22 with you and I have gone way over time and we're just going to have to deal with it. Because after the Jewish people handed over the King of Kings to be crucified and salvation started to pour into the Gentile world, something quite unexpected happened. The Jewish people still yearning for a warlike king, yearning for someone who could liberate them from the chains of oppression, ran to a false Jewish Messiah. And in the year 132, they began a rebellion against Rome. And Hadrian came in and so thoroughly crushed it that he outlawed all Druze from Jerusalem. They were no longer allowed into the holy city where the sacrifice was provided. Around the year 150, as more and more Gentiles got saved, they reasoned in their hearts, huh, 
The Jews killed Jesus. Jesus was God. The Jews killed God. And the idea of deocide, that the Jews had tried to kill God, was born. Never taught before that. And so replacement theology came into existence. The idea that the church now replaces Israel began to be taught. And by the year 313, when the Edict of Toleration was issued in Rome, so that all Romans were Christians, Jews were the bad guy instead of the race who brought the Savior of the world and gave us the Holy Word of God. So, well, why tell us all of this on triumphal entry? Because all over America right now in churches, what we're focusing on is how stupid the Jews are for missing Jesus their King. Prophecy books are being written about how one-third of them will die so that we can be raptured. We're forgetting that Jesus died at the hands of the Jews, for the Jews, as a Jew. I want you to go back with me to Genesis 22, and we will finish. Abraham looked up there in a thicket and he saw a ram caught by its crown. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the region of Moriah, later called Golgotha. We sing about as Calvary. The Lord will provide. Let me give you proof this morning that Abraham looked for Jesus' day and saw it. If you didn't believe the testimony of Jesus in John 8:56, believe what you read here. He didn't say the Lord has provided. He didn't say, I needed a sacrifice instead of my son. God gave me a ram. He said, on this mountain, Yahweh Yireh, God will provide. He saw it as an event yet in their future that would provide for all of Abraham's children. And like the little song says, although it's the nation of Israel, because of faith, I am one of them and so are you. We're children of Father Abraham, friends of God, if we act like Abraham. So what is your commission this morning? Is it simply to know that a great king died for you? Is it simply to know it was bloody? It was horrible? Is it simply to know you deserved it and not him? Oh, no, friends, it is so much more. It is to act like Abraham, to go where God says to go, when He says to go, to do what He says to do without question, without understanding. Do it. The understanding will follow. And on that mountain, God will provide. He will provide in every area of your life. You will never know a day without what you need from God when you are where He says to be, doing what He says you should be doing, because He'll fly in provision on ravens if He has to. Your job is to be wherever He tells you to be when He says it. Otherwise, let's just tell the truth. You're a God to yourself and your actions deny Jesus. We never say it. We never point to someone else or ourselves and say it. But the Holy Word of God says it, and Paul said it to Titus. He said, by their actions, they denied Jesus, our only Sovereign and Lord. And you say, how could you do it? When we don't do what He tells us to do, then He is not functioning in our life as a Lord 
the word for Lord is owner and controller. Say this with me, saints. Obedience is not optional. Faith saves you. The proof that your faith is there is your obedience. Hear me. Obedience is not getting it right. It is not not sinning. Obedience is trying. It is trying. It's backing up and ramming the car until you figure out that you need keys. It's doing whatever it takes to move in the direction God's told you. We're aiming for perfection. He knows we're not going to hit it. He wants to watch us try. But we have lied to ourselves if we say Jesus is our sacrifice, our King, if you like to say it this way, our vicarious substitution, and He is not your Lord. This week, contemplate that. Sunday, I will teach you everything I know about the resurrection. I will love it. I will dance in it. But He's not our risen Savior if He's not your crucified King. He's just a story. Just something you intellectually ascend to. So this week, you contemplate what it means to be obedient to Him and hear this word, carry your cross daily. Figure out what that means. Now stand to your feet.